Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. And please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and today we're going to do, uh, we're actually going to do an overview of the second half of the book. So it's an overview of chapters 4 through 6. We did that uh, for chapters 1 through 3 at the beginning of the series. And we ran out of time to really go through the whole thing, which I'm glad that we did, because now we can focus more on uh, on this second half of the book. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's guidance for this uh, as we go through his word, God, we thank you that you have called us into your kingdom. You have adopted us into your family. All of those of us who are in Christ, we belong to you. We are your children and we are part of your family. And we praise you because of that. And God, I pray that you would lead us today as we open your word, as we look at what your Holy Spirit has inspired. I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts. I pray that we would, um, that we would know your power that is at work in us, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead and that, uh, seated him at, the, at your right hand, God, and that we would also know and understand the love that is beyond comprehension, Lord. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be guiding us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me to proclaim your word and that we would be nurtured by your word, by your gospel, that the grace of your son Jesus would strengthen us and would overflow for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So thank you, Sam. Oh, Sam, where, I don't know where Sam went, but now oh, there we go. Thank you, Sam, for pointing out to my uh, email. Uh, I, I'm glad that you read it. If you don't read my emails or if you are not getting my emails, please let me know because I do try to send uh, important information uh, in those emails. And yeah, the title of that email was uh, when, the rubber, when the Rubber Meets the Road. And actually, there was a typo, if you were paying attention. But, uh, uh, and, and the reason for that title is because the second half of the book of Ephesians is a very, very practical section of the book. Uh, in, in the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul lays down the foundation, the theological foundation. He lays down all the realities of the gospel. I really, really love the letter to the Ephesians because it's like the, the letter to the Romans, but actually in a, in a size that you can actually digest it. In a size that you, can, that you don't have to spend uh, uh, three or four years in a sermon series preaching through it in order to digest the whole thing. In Ephesians, you have kind of a summary of doctrine, and you have a lot of doctrine here, a lot of amazing truths about God, about the gospel, but they are all synthesized in a way that it can be 
easily understood. And so what Paul has done here is that in the first three chapters, he has given us a lot of theological truths. He has laid down uh, uh, the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus. He uh, He has talked about Uh, what happened at salvation, how we were brought from death to life. He has taught about uh, what has happened at salvation, maybe another aspect of it, that we went from not belonging to God's family and now we belong to God's people. We have been adopted by God and we are now God's new people. We are now God's new temple. And in the second half of the book, in chapters four through six, he is going to get very, very practical. Lest we think that, you know, all of these realities of the Christian life are only spiritual and they don't have anything to do with our everyday lives. But that would be a mistake because all of the spiritual realities of the gospel, all of these spiritual blessings that we have received, as Paul says, all of these, or or sorry, this, spiritual going from death to life, this spiritual being brought into God's family has very practical implications for today. In this past, in this, in these uh, verses, in these chapters, Paul talks about the, the, the Christian household. He talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. He talks about the relationship between parents and children. He talks about the relationship between masters and bond servants or slaves, which we'll get to that because I know that that could be controversial. Um, He talks about how the church should uh, um, relate to one another. He talks talks about so many practical implications. So basically what I would like to do today is I would like to go through the whole section. And so we're going to actually read the whole section, not right now. We're going to read it little by little. But my, my goal here is that by the end of today, we will have a general understanding or kind of a big picture for Ephesians 4 through 6 so that once we get into the details, we are able to place them on a, a larger picture, on a, on a larger map. So he starts out this section by saying in verse 4, sorry, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, and when you see that therefore, you know that, okay, so he is linking everything that he just said He is linking it to what he is about to say. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the first practical implication that Paul is giving to the church of Ephesus, to the Ephesians, and therefore to us as well, is that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And, and you, you got to pay attention to this word walk, because this uh, this word actually shows up throughout the entire letter. Is that is are, are those still kind of cycling through? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I just I, I keep seeing people going like 
I'm like, what, what's going on over there? But sorry. So um, that word to walk is going to continue to show up throughout the letter and has been showing up throughout the letter. And so here, when Paul says that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we, uh, uh, of the calling to which you have been called, it recalls what he has already said about walking. Remember in chapter two, when he says, verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he is saying, when we were dead, we used to walk in these things. We used to walk in disobedience. We used to walk following the world, following the devil, and following our own flesh, our own self. And then in verse, uh, in verse four, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he moves on and, or, or he, he goes forth and then look at what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in other words, Paul is saying, we no longer walk like we did when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We should no longer walk this way. Instead, we should walk in those good works that God prepared for us beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so he is calling all believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And what does this look like in, in practical life? Well, it means that we walk in humility, we walk in gentleness, we walk in patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Unity is a really big deal for Paul. Unity is a really big deal in the church. How will the world know that we are different from them? Well, when we are united, when we love one another. If the world sees that the church is fighting with one another, if the world sees that we, even here in the local church, have you know, issues with one another and are always fighting, then the world is just gonna, it's gonna say, how is the church any different from us? How are these people any different from us? They'll, all they do is fight. All they do is post mean things on Facebook and on Twitter. There's no unity at all. But when they see that we are united, when we see that we treat each other with humility, with gentleness, with patience, when, we, when they see that we bear with one another in love, when, we, when they see that we are united because we understand that there is one spirit, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, then they see, wow, there is something different about these people. They are united. They are working together towards a common goal. Now, if, if we're honest, this calling of being united is near impossible, right? We are so different from one another, right? Especially if we take into consideration other churches, right? Where we have maybe different views on, on secondary doctrines or where we, you know, have different personalities, different, different ways of doing things. This calling of being united, of keeping unity just seems like a really really difficult calling. But the, the amazing news is that God calls us to do something, but he gifts us with the power to do what he has called us to do. Whenever God calls us to do something, he is giving us what we need 
to obey the command that he has just given us. And so Paul goes on in, in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, to talk about what God has done for us. He goes on to talk about the grace of God. Notice that the grace of God is not just the thing that saved us on the first place, but it's also the grace of God is also the thing that keeps us going. So he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Whew. Okay, so that's a long section. Uh, don't worry, we're going to go back and look at all of these things in detail. But here's the gist of it. Here's the, here's the, 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 the summary. God has called us to unity, but he has given us the grace. He has gifted us with what we need to preserve unity within the church. He has gifted each member of the church with a spiritual gift or perhaps with a couple or several spiritual gifts that we are supposed to use for the building up of the church. He has gifted each one of us with the Holy Spirit that has given us a gift that is designed specifically to be used for the growth of the church, for the unity of the church. We talked about spiritual gifts a while back when we talked about uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And remember that the spiritual gifts are to be used for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church. They should never be used selfishly. For ourselves, they should always be used to promote the growth and the unity of the church. Now, here's another thing that Jesus did, or it, it is related, uh, but it says that he gave, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, we're going to go, we're going to get into all the complicated issues of that verse, questions like, wait, so are there apostles today, or is prophecy still for today? Um, are these spiritual gifts? Are these, you know, we're going to get into all of these questions later once we, once we tackle them in detail. But again, here's the summary of it. God has gifted the church with, uh, with gifted ministers, with gifted people, with gifted men that are leading the church and that are, if you see in verse 12, they are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the, of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he has given us uh, uh, gifted people that are there using these spiritual gifts to build up the church, but not just to build up the church. They are using them to equip the saints, to equip the church, the entire church. So I believe that it is the work of the leaders of the church. It is the work of the elders of the church to equip the rest of the church so that every single member of the church is doing the ministry, right? It's, it doesn't say that it is the apostles and prophets and, and evangelists and preachers and teachers that are doing the ministry. No, it says they are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So think of, you know, this, might, this is not a perfect analogy by any means, but it's kind of like an army where you have, you have ranks, you have a hierarchy, you have uh, generals, you have uh, lieutenants, you have, you know, all of these different uh, uh, ranks. Every single person in the army is expected to do the work, right? It's not like the, 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 the general or the lieutenant, they are the ones doing all the work. And then the soldiers are just over here, you know, hanging out and, and seeing them work and being like, good job, guys. No, everyone in the army is working together for a common goal. And so in, the same, in a similar way, like I said, it's a very imperfect analogy, but in a similar way, we are all working together towards the same goal. We are all working together doing the ministry. And the goal is ultimately that we would become like Christ that we would become mature, that we would, re that we would become likeness with, or that we would uh, uh, get to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right, well, in case that this wasn't practical enough, things are going to get even more practical here. In, verses, in verse 17 uh, through 24, and, and more so in, in the following verses, but in 17 he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Notice the word walk again. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There is a struggle in the Christian life where our old self is still pulling us, where our old self is, is still wanting to behave like we used to before we were brought from death to life. There's something in us still pulling us to want to behave like or to want to walk like the Gentiles do. When he talks about Gentiles here, he's talking about like unbelievers do. 
But the call for every believer, for everyone who is in Christ, for everyone who has received a new life is to stop walking like that. To walk no longer, to walk no more as the Gentiles do. That is not the way that you learned, says Paul. You learned from Christ. And the truth is in Christ, and therefore we walk in the truth. We are transformed in the spirit of our minds by the truth of the gospel. When all we are putting in our minds, when, when all we are filling our minds with is the world, then we shouldn't be surprised if our old self is like, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's walk like we used to. But what happens when you, when you starve the old self? What happens when you stop putting all of that stuff in your mind and instead you put the truth that is in Jesus, you put it in your mind? Well, then your mind is transformed. Then you are little by little taking off, putting off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and you are little by little putting on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Why does God want us to live, to walk in righteousness and holiness? Is God just really picky? I mean, well, yeah, I'm not even going to respond to that question. I'm not using an outline here, so I need to be careful uh, about what I say. But I believe that God wants us to walk in righteousness and in holiness because he is accomplishing the mission. He is accomplishing the purpose of filling the world with his glory. He is doing that through the church. It says in Ephesians 1, if you remember, chapter, um, chap chapter 1, verse 10, it says, well, I'm going to read verse 9. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. We know that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. We know also from chapter 1, verse 22, that he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things, all in all. So, if God is uniting all things in Christ, heaven, things in heaven, things on earth. If God has given power and authority to Jesus and is filling the entire earth with his glory and he has given Jesus as the head of the church, then it means that we as the church are the agents of that filling all things. It means that we as a church have the responsibility to live in holiness and in righteousness because we are God's representatives here on earth because we are God's ambassadors here on earth and so these moral instructions this moral code this ethic ethic ethical code that Paul is giving us here is not just arbitrary rather Paul or God through Paul is calling us to walk like we were meant to walk since the moment we were created. He is calling us to walk like humans were supposed to walk. 
before sin entered into the world. See, the problem is that the world has a distortion of what it means to be human. The world has a distortion of what it means to, to, to live and to enjoy. But if we know that God, the creator of the world, has given us specific instructions about how his world works, then it is not arbitrary of him to demand that we behave in that way. Actually, it is, it's really nice of him to say, you should live this way. This is how my world is supposed to be enjoyed. And this is how my glory covers the earth. And so in verse 25 of chapter 4, he gets even more practical. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I don't think this section needs that much of my commentary. I think it's, it's very plain. So I'm, I'm just going to move on and don't worry. We're going to get back to this when we go in detail. But here is even more practical implications. But check this out. Uh, this in this next section, Paul addresses different sins that we should avoid. But he really, uh, uh, he really hits hard against immorality, against sexual immorality. He also hits really hard against uh, sinning with the things we say. And so, don't you find it a little bit interesting that that's usually how the church has lost its witness? The church has lost its witness by the things that we say sometimes. By the, and I don't mean the good things we say. I mean the bad things we say. The things that we say when we are angry. The things that we say that when we are not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when the world looks at the church and sees these people behave and, and talk just like us. And also, we lose our witness when we engage in sexual immorality. That's when the devil really, really loves to see the church fall in those two areas. In the things that we say and in, in immorality. So this is what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. There's that word again, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Now, there may be some people who say, oh, that, you know, that's really like not even mention these things. Aren't you exaggerating a little bit? Well, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you saying like, oh, that's a little bit too much. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with him. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Actually, I'm going to stop there for a second. Notice that the motivation for our obedience to God is the love of Christ. Notice that he calls us to be imitators of God as beloved children. Parents, do your kids imitate you? They do. I, I think even when, unfortunately, even when we are not loving to them, they imitate us. They do the things that we do. They say some of the phrases that we say, right? Sometimes we hear our children say, especially the little ones, saying some phrases and we're like, where did you learn that? And they're like, oh, wow, that's what I say. They just imitate me. Well, we are called to imitate our father. As beloved children, we are called to imitate God and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the, for the love of Christ controls us. We are to be controlled by the love of Christ. We are to be compelled by the love of Christ. Everything that, that we do should be motivated by the love of Christ. When we relate to one another, when we, uh, um, when we are, are, relate to our spouses, to our children, to when we do business, in everything that we do, we should always be thinking, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And therefore, I am going to live in a loving way. I am going to walk in a loving way, sacrificially loving others. See, the problem with the world and the, the sexual ethics of the world is that in the world, it's all about self-pleasure. It's all about self-gratification. It's all about what can I get out of this relationship? But with God and with the gospel, it's all about self-sacrifice. How can I serve this person? How can I serve my spouse? How can I serve my children? That is the difference there. One is self-gratification and the other one is self-sacrifice. He talks about all of these sins that are horrible, that, are, that, are, that, are, that God absolutely hates, and these sins are to be exposed. If we really want to, to have these sins dealt, if we really want to get rid of these sins, these sins have to be exposed. We cannot try to cover up these sins. We cannot try to sweep them under the rug. We have to expose 
these sins and bring them to the light. And that's why he says in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So instead of walking in darkness, we are to, to walk in the light. Instead of covering up for those sins, we are to expose those sins so that, so that they are dealt with. Instead of being drunk with wine, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of wasting our time, we should make the best use of the time because the days are evil. So as you can see, this is extremely practical. Just imagine about all the, imagine all the things that we're going to talk about when we go in detail here. But this is just a little, a little taste of what we're going to go through. In verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul addresses the Christian household. He has already addressed the church. He, he talks about how the church should seek unity, how they should seek to build one another up. He talks about how the church has received gifts. But now he goes to the Christian household, to the Christian family. And I think this is extremely telling because think about this. Paul has just given them an incredibly hefty ecclesiology and eschatology, meaning doctrine of the church, doctrine of the last things, right? He, is, he has just told them that God is feeling all things in Christ, that God has put all things under the submission of Jesus Christ. And he has just told them that the church is the, the, the body of Christ, Christ being the head and the ruler of everything. And so one would imagine that Paul, after saying these amazingly hefty things, he would say, now go and take over. Now go and fight all the human uh, 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 sinful governments. Go and, and do all of these incredible things. But what does he focus on instead? He says, therefore, go and love your wives. Therefore, go and train your children. Therefore, go and honor your parents. Therefore, go and treat your to them, he tells them, treat your slaves, because they had slaves at that time, treat your, your bond servants, treat them nicely. Servants, obey your masters. 
Why is that? Because if we are God's new temple, if we are God's new people, if we are God's redeemed humanity, when we behave in the way that he intended for us to walk, then we are showing the world what the kingdom of God is like. When, when we, let's read this section and then, and then we can talk a little bit more about it. So this is what he has to say about husbands and wives. He says, wives, verse 22, chapter five, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives and as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, children, are you listening? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, parents, parents, are you listening? Nice. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of the eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, as literally as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So think about this for a second. The way that you treat your spouse is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus. Husband, if you love your wife sacrificially, you are imitating Jesus himself who sacrificially loved his wife and gave himself up for her. And we're talking about his wife, the church. These things are important because they are a picture of the gospel. Wife, when you respect your husband, when you submit to his spiritual leadership, you are showing the gospel to the world. When other couples or when other people, when, when your friends, when your neighbors see your marriage, 
What do they see in your marriage? Do they see a picture of the gospel? Do they see an appealing invitation to, to join this group? I don't know what they're doing in that church, but look at how they treat each other. Look at how this husband that used to be abusive, that used to insult his wife, look at how he serves her now sacrificially. Look at this wife, how she always used to be putting him down and, and publicly humiliating him. And now look at how she submits to him. Man, what are they doing in that place? Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus that is transforming us. Children. Marcus, Eliza, Jack, Ezra, Ezra, all the children. When you honor your parents, you are showing to the world the gospel of Jesus. When you obey your parents, your friends look at you and say, wow, he doesn't throw a, a, a tantrum every time that, that his parents ask him to do something. There's something different about him. Parents, the way that you raise your children reflects the gospel. The way that you treat your children is a witness to the gospel of Jesus. If your children are not obedient to you, if your children are not submissive to you, you are not showing a good portrait of the gospel. But if the world sees that you love your children, that you do not provoke your children to anger, but that you discipline and instruct them in the Lord. See, these things are not self-exclusive. We can love our children. We can treat them uh, with respect. We can, we can uh, not provoke our children and still discipline and instruct them in the Lord. In fact, parents, we are expected to instruct and discipline our children. Undisciplined children reflect poorly on the gospel of Jesus. Now, bond servants and masters, well, this is not a, quite a relationship that we have today. This was all part of the, of the Greco-Roman household. This was what a Greco-Roman household consisted of. It was, it was parents, it was children, and then it was slaves. Obviously, we don't have that today. But I think this could translate into how we do business. This could translate into how we work as employees or how we, uh, uh, how we treat our employees. If we are, uh, you know, if you own a business or, or if, if you hire someone to come to your house and fix your plumbing that went bad. If you have someone come to your house and help you clean your house. The way you treat those people matters. Because when they see that you are not just a dismissive or, or abusive boss or, or employer, but when they see that you love them, when they see that you care about them, when they see that you are not threatening them, they see that there's something different in you. Look, I love verse 9, how it says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. God is ultimately our master. 
we belong to God and when we understand that, we are going to do business in a way that reflects that. Finally, verse 10, in case that we forget that this is a spiritual battle, right? He has given us a lot of very practical implications for this, but he closes reminding us that this is a spiritual battle that we are waging. He uses the language of war. He uses military language. But lest we forget or, or lest we think that we are fighting against, against our neighbors or lest we think we are fighting against the government or against, you know, other people, he reminds us that all of these things are actually empowered by, uh, uh, by spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore, our uh, our armor, our, our uh, armor for, for the Christian battle is a spiritual armor. So this is what he says in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaring darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am, what I am doing. Take it because the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all you, sorry, with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful letter that we have in front of us. Thank you, God, for bringing us from death to life. Thank you for raising us up with Christ. Thank you for making us alive together with Christ. Thank you for seating us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank you, God, that you have given us every spiritual blessing. And God, I pray that you would strengthen us and empower us 
to wage this spiritual battle against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. That we would stand firm. Lord, I pray that the love of your son Jesus for us would be our motivation, would be our engine. Lord, I pray that we would be your imitators as beloved children, that we would walk in love as Christ loved us and and gave himself up for us. God, please strengthen our marriages, strengthen our families, Lord, that we would think often, Lord, that the way that we treat our spouses, our children, the way that we do business reflects on your gospel, reflects on you. God, we thank you for making us a part of your kingdom, for bringing us into your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.